Hi, my name is Jonah Van Driesem, and on today's episode of Microlink, you're gonna be hearing my fourth interview in the series of interviews I'm doing with the BC Liberal leadership candidates. If you haven't checked out my interviews with Val Litwin, Ellis Ross, and Gavin Dew yet, you should make sure to go check those out after listening to this episode. These interviews are meant to focus on the needs of students across British Columbia and giving those who are trying to become our next Premier the chance to respond to those concerns. On today's episode, I have independent conservative journalist Aaron Gunn, who many have already commented on my social media about his appearance. But let's dive right in because it's going to be a very interesting interview. Mr. Yeah. Gunn, thank you so much for joining me. Um, the question everyone wants to know when you undertake these sorts of things, uh, because so few people run for office and so few, way fewer people run for a party leadership in their life, uh, is why? Why run? What is the thing that pushed you to do this? I think, to be honest, I'm just so disappointed with the direction of, of this province and this country right now. And but maybe more importantly, as to why I'm running specifically is during the last provincial election, I feel like a real alternative was not being articulated by anybody on the debate stage. To me, it was three parties that were all very similar to each other. I feel there's a lot of issues where um, there are important perspectives that aren't being uh, addressed or aren't being spoken to or aren't being made. no one's giving voice to them. A huge number of taxpayers don't actually have a voice. So that's why I've considered uh, jumping into this race and um, think it's important that, that we have real debates about real issues. Um, so I kind of, the second question I have here is, uh, if you want to do the things, have the conversations you want to have in the province of British Columbia, uh, you need to win uh, the next election. And my question to you is on resume, on paper, Andrew Wilkinson kind of appeared as the perfect candidate, had all this experience, ticked all the boxes of what you would expect from a potential premier, but uh, just could not connect in any real way with British Columbians. And obviously a terrible result uh, came about for the BC Liberals. So what in your background, what in your life experiences not only makes you the most qualified of the potential candidates here to be premier, but also to win the next election? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there in in kind of your question, which is that what happened in the last election was Andrew Wilkinson didn't connect with anybody. So you need someone first and foremost that connects with people. I feel that, you know, over the past couple of years, I've built up the largest social media following in BC, at least in the political space. And I think that is because I'm able to connect with people and talk about the issues that matter to them, not about the issues that matter to the media or not about issues that that matter to, to the, you know, the, the the little lawyer clique in downtown Vancouver, but the issues that matter to everyday people living in, in small towns and suburbs, working nine to five jobs, raising families, uh, stuck in, in commutes and George Massey Tunnel or whatever the case may be. So. That's what I think is it, it, you need to be able to connect with people on the issues. And, um, and I think you, and part of that is actually talking about the issues that people care about. So that's what I think I've been doing. And that's what um, I think, think I do. And that's why uh, I think we'll be very successful in this race and, and moving uh, beyond it. Something that's come up a lot just with talking with students uh, and even with your fellow candidates for the leadership is uh, party candidates, and particularly just people not 
once again, kind of in this issue of not feeling that they have a home in the BC Liberal Party. Uh, and Ellis Ross made the point to me that obviously uh, the BC Liberal ran a lot of great candidates in the last election, but they didn't win. Uh, and I was just, I've been thinking about this a lot in this terms of how do you recruit great candidates from a variety of backgrounds and how do you uh, make, make sure they win? So I guess that's my question to you. How are you, what type of team are you going to build uh, as a leader of the BC Liberal Party? Uh, and why is that the winning team? Well, I think it almost goes back to your, your first question, which is that if you have a party, right now I feel that the BC Liberals almost stand for nothing. I think once you have a party that actually stands for a bold set of ideas, has an ambitious plan for the province, you will attract those kind of high caliber people that will become high caliber candidates and they'll be from a, a, a whole a wide array of backgrounds. And, and in addition to that, I think I've always been a big supporter of empowering local EDAs, local riding associations to, um, you know, elect the best people from their communities. I've always believed in a, you know, a bottom up approach, not a top down approach. So I think, um, I know last election, there's a lot of candidates that were appointed, which also uh, ticked off a lot of local members, as you might uh, imagine that would do. So, um, but look, I, I think it's, it's, it's more importantly is that the band, the brand is broken. It needs new ideas, new energy, rebranding, all this stuff you've heard a hundred times. Um, but it needs to be bold and it needs to have a different alternative vision for the province. And if you do that and you present that, I think you will attract the right kind of high caliber candidates that you're talking about. Um, but the things I've heard from sources and frankly, even people who run was uh, they don't feel comfortable even openly supporting the party now because it's been uh, obviously kind of with controversies from the last election mired with this image that is homophobic and sexist um and oft and frankly a lot of my fellow students who are kind of centrist lean center right on economic issues and tend to vote bc liberal couldn't vote uh bc liberal in the last election so my question to you there is how do you fix that image of a of this party being bigoted and closed to people Well, I don't think I, I would kind of um, dispute the, the the notion that it is or that a majority or a, a large number of people think that it is. I think that um, we got trapped into games being played by the media and got put on the defensive. Look, I, I think that it's got to be a big tent party. It's got to have people from all across the uh, the political spectrum uh, on the social issues specifically that, that you mentioned. But um, look, I don't want to be throwing different members of the coalition under the bus. I, I, I feel like there's kind of a question underlying the question that you're talking about. And so I'll just answer, I'll just answer that directly, um, which is that I don't think social conservatives uh, should be thrown under the bus in the party. Um, they're an important part of British Columbia and its history. Um, that being said, everyone needs to respect everybody. And I mean, you mentioned some of the, some of the other different communities there, whether that's women, whether it's people from the LGBT uh, community. Um, so yeah, I think the party needs to be about respect and moving forward. But we also cannot allow, uh, you know, errand or old tweets or you know the media or the NDP to go digging up old things and try to brand that party. This party is about making British Columbia better and stronger for everybody who lives here. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what skin color you are, sexual orientation. This is needs to be about building a stronger uh, British Columbia and not getting sidetracked by these 
identity politics games that are so often being played by uh, our political opponents. Moving off all of the party politics kind of things and onto some real issues, um, these are questions that have come from BCIT students that I've reached out to ask a number of groups that I'm just in uh, to submit some questions. And, and the biggest one that came up was what I like to call kind of the unaffordability cycle of British Columbia, right? That people are going to school to get a job, but they're working as well and they're not working at a job that pays them very well so they can't afford school, they can't afford rent, they can't afford all these things they need. And it's just kind of a constant churn of uh, how do I how do I afford life? And so my question to you, and obviously you haven't released your policy platform, so I'm not expecting specifics, but what is your approach, what is going to be your approach to defeating this unaffordability cycle that young people particularly face in the province? Sure. And just before I give you an answer to that, I wanted to go back and just add something to the previous one. And that is that it's just the point I was trying to make is that tolerance uh, is a two-way street. So um, we need to be completely against any kind of hateful rhetoric on all sides. But also, if you look at, you know, the past two weeks, and I guess this is, this is um, I don't know when you're going to be releasing this, but we've had basically almost, uh, you know, close to a dozen churches across this country, mainly in British Columbia, set on fire and burned to the ground over the past two weeks. So um, there are issues all over the place. And I think it, it, it's a disservice right now to the to um, the public discourse to paint it one way or, or another. Now, uh, to your question about unaffordability, which I think by far and away is the number one issue. Um, this province has become a completely unaffordable place to live since I grew up here. Uh, that obviously housing gets a lot of the attention. ICBC rates are ridiculous. They've come down a little bit, but I mean, that whole monopoly is a complete disaster. Uh, gas prices, we have the highest gas prices in all of North America. Again, at time of recording, I think it's over $1.70, close to $1.75. Um, and, and then you have the housing crisis, which is you have situations where people grow up in these communities in Vancouver, in Victoria, they work hard, they pay their taxes, they get an education, um, and they're not able to afford homes in the communities that they grew up in. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. And I, I don't think that is some kind of reasonable expectation that we should all be forced to accept. I don't, I don't think that's, that's right. Now, what you do with that, I think there's a couple things. There's, there's a lot of stuff on the supply side that we can do. And then when it comes to some of these concerns on, on money laundering and people kind of, uh, you know, house flipping and stuff. Um, look, I've got no, no problem with people investing in the stock market and uh, rolling the dice. But uh, when it comes to, you know, the housing and housing market and the housing industry, when you start messing around with that, you're messing with people's lives and the, and the abilities of people to own homes. So I think, um, I think there's lots of things that can be done there and it needs to be priority number one by any government. The other big question, I think it also ties in a little bit to this affordability issue, uh, is the doctor shortage uh, with BC. Obviously, the, like, you know, our healthcare system has been very much focused on fighting uh, the pandemic. Uh, and that's putting incredible strain on it. And you're seeing just because of uh, just the insane amount of work that we've put on doctors and nurses that many of them are now leaving uh, the industry just because they are burnt out from it. Uh, but even before that, British Columbians, I believe the statistic was one in five didn't have uh, access to a family doctor or a regular doctor. I mean, and there's just huge services gaps 
across British Columbia. So I'm, I'm curious what you would do as premier to address that gap and attract talented individuals to the province and into the workforce. Yeah, I think there's two things. I think one on the healthcare system uh, as a whole, we've got a large centrally managed uh, bureaucracy um, running running our healthcare system. So it shouldn't be too surprising that there's shortages that keep cropping up in all sorts of different uh, areas. So I think we need to be innovative. I think we need more choice, more competition. I think the false uh, um, kind of false choice grant uh, that's given between our system and the Americans is a wrong one. You can look at Europe. There's lots of systems that work a lot better and have been working a lot better over there. Um, and I think what you mentioned COVID and I think COVID, I don't think people realize how badly our healthcare system performed during that in the sense that, you know, we were at, we did really well here in British Columbia with, with regard to managing case counts compared to, for example, the United States and many countries in Europe. And yet our hospitals were basically at capacity and overflowing and reaching, uh, you know, we did not have a ton of cases and a ton of hospitalizations, comparatively speaking. And yet our healthcare system was creaking under the weight. So I think that is um, part of that was, was showcasing the fact that we're running these hospitals of ours at 90, 95% capacity, almost on a non-pandemic uh, related timeframe. So I think that that needs to be dealt with. You mentioned doctors and nurses. This ties into something else, which is more education, I think. But I think there needs to be a dramatic shift with how we're, we're, we're funding um, post-secondary ed, uh, education in this province. And I think it needs to be a lot more directed at the areas where um, we need people. So I think there is a huge demand for uh, people in the healthcare space, whether that's nurses, as you said, whether that's, um, and, and obviously there's different, there's not just RNs, there's, there's lower level of nurses that are equally important, doctors, of course, specialists. So um, these are in huge demand. And I think um, we need to make sure when we're funding our post-secondary institutions that, we're, that we are doing so in a way that, that highlights the gaps that are needed to be filled in society. Um, just moving on from this topic, and, and so I kind of picked three that I just like saw really consistently come up um, from students. And the third biggest one, um, but I don't think any less important, is uh, the relationship between uh, Canada and its First Nations. And obviously, uh, Canada Day was a very sensitive time. A lot of people were uh, out there celebrating, enjoying their Canada Day. I, you know, I went down to the BC Legislature. Uh, and watched some of the events. So I my, guess my ultimate question here to you is, what do you think of the current approach that our government is taking to reconciliation and how as premier would you change that approach and make it better? Yeah, well, I think the first thing we should be doing is standing up to the small group of people who are making the process a lot worse. And that is the people going around tearing down statues, spreading lies, spreading misinformation, slandering and defaming our own country. Um, I would strongly reject, I mean, terms like settler Canadians, I think are ridiculous. I mean, I was born in this country, so I don't know if I don't belong in this country who I, uh, I should be born to. I also don't think the fact that I was born here should give me any more rights than someone who legally immigrates here yesterday and got their Canadian citizenship yesterday. So I think we're all Canadians. We're all on the same page. Um, we can have talks about our history, about what happened 100, 150 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. I've been, I, I'm, uh, I'm a lover and, and uh, gracious consumer of, of, of history, so I'm happy to have those conversations. But 
yeah, I think it's, it's, first of all, I think there's a small group of people who have ulterior motives and has a, have a different agenda and they're using this um, to further it. Look, I mean, there's these church fires that they've been going around burning churches throughout the province. Most of these churches are on indigenous land and are still or were being used by indigenous people, the vast majority of whom actually remain Catholic. So you're, you're standing up and reconciling or getting revenge by burning down the churches of indigenous people that the indigenous people didn't ask for. And a lot of the times you see, like I saw Vancouver there, they vandalized a church. It was done by two white girls. I mean, this isn't what, there's no indigenous leaders calling for the vandalization of churches or burning down of churches. Like this isn't, this is, it's, it's ironic because it's almost the projection by a small group of ideologically motivated people of what needs to be done. And, and mo- all First Nation leaders are saying this isn't helping the problem. You can read the Truth and Reconciliation Report. There's nothing in there about burning down churches or tearing down statues. In fact, the exact opposite. So, and I mean, you also see that with eco-colonialism. You see that with, um, you know, far left groups fighting the development of resources in a lot of these indigenous communities that the elected bands have voted to proceed with and have partnered with industry. And yet they still get protested against and they still get shut down. You see it in forestry in Vancouver Island. You see it with natural gas up in Northern BC. So I think, and it's what it is, it's eco-colonialism. It's a small group of, of, you know, mainly white far left activists trying to project onto indigenous communities what they think they should be. And it's ironic because it's exactly what residential schools were. It was a group of, of super progressive uh, people who thought that uh, indigenous people needed to be educated in, in, in the ways and superior culture of the white guy. And we see how badly that went. So we're seeing the same attitude. It's, it's, it's very ironic. And I think to your point of what is the solution, the solution I think has to be economic partnership and economic empowerment. So um, I think we've seen that. We've seen some First Nations, the great thing about having all these uh, over 200 First Nations here in BC, individual bands, is you actually see some of them that have continued to struggle and others that have been incredibly prosperous and are already prospering um, to a tremendous degree. And uh, I think you see that and you have to try to replicate that uh, across the province and, and giving their economic future back in their own hands. Moving on from that, and I'm more kind of a general question for you. Let's just, just throwing out a hypothetical here. Uh, you win the leadership, uh, you win the next election, you're premier of British Columbia, uh, and you're looking at what you're going to do. What, what, is, what are going to be your kind of top priorities, who you're putting into cabinet? So, you know, week one in office, you're back in the legislature. What are the first few things that you would try to pass or try to do uh, as premier? Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves if we're planning my uh, first week at Premier here. I got to uh, officially launch the leadership and then win the leadership and then uh, win a gen- consolidate the caucus and win uh, a general election. But um, look, I think I, I kind of mentioned it before. I think the most important thing is is for, for most people is, is unaffordability. And like most people want to not have to care about politics is how, is how I view it. They want the government um, to basically stay out of their stay out of their way as much as possible and have everything uh, run smooth. So I think um, 
that's getting unaffordability under control, whether it's on gas prices, whether it's abolishing the ICBC monopoly, whether it is, um, uh, you know, getting house, housing prices to a point where they're, they're stable and predictable, which I think is, uh, are equally important. And then it's firing up, uh, you know, firing up the economy. It's getting our energy resources to market, which we failed to do. And it's, um, you know, beginning, I mean, you mentioned first thing, healthcare and education. I think some of the reforms, common sense reforms there need, are going to take time. Um, but, you know, if it's unaffordability, if we're talking about the statues and some of the culture stuff, if we're talking about some of the lawlessness that's happened in, in Vancouver with some of these tent cities, we haven't really gotten to that. But overall, I'd say it's got to be about common sense and bringing back common sense. And I think, you know, I, I live in Victoria and I know a lot of people in Vancouver, obviously, and a lot of people just feel that there's not a lot of common sense uh, around right now. There's not a lot of level-headed uh, policymaking. So I think um, that, that has to be uh, priority one. And uh, by the way, if you said maybe if you said one thing, um, I think it's to start the process of starting to rein in some of these city councils that have gone completely off the deep end. And uh, that's something that's completely in the provincial government's purview. So that might uh, might have to be number one. Although we'll see where we're uh, see where we're at at the time. So kind of my last question on specific issues, and then I'm going to kind of shift into our our final focus on running the official opposition here. Um, but obviously, kind of the big thing that everyone's been talking about right now, everyone's kind of been participating in, is BC's reopening plan. Uh, obviously, as of uh, Thursday, July the 1st, Canada Day, British Columbians, if they're vaccinated, have the option to not wear their mask indoors. Also, I mean, obviously, businesses have the right to still define their own uh, mask policy. Uh, there's obviously been announcements within the new budget uh, to support businesses. Obviously, we're going to talk about whether or not how effective those are. Um, but from the reopening plan you've seen so far, what have what are your thoughts on it and how if you were in charge of it would you have refocused it or changed it look i mean uh one of the big things i would say in general uh we didn't get into this very much i i didn't i didn't mention it before but i think what's really important for a what people want out of their politicians now is, is authenticity and part of authenticity i think is also if you see something that's going relatively well you say uh that you think Things are going pretty well. Look, with the reopening in British Columbia and with the management of most of the pandemic, I think we've probably been best in the country. Um, I probably would have uh, opened some things maybe, you know, two or three weeks earlier or something where it became clear to me that the vaccines were working and we were on our way out of this. Um, and, you know, the, throughout the co uh, course of the pandemic, there were certain things that I was very critical of, for example, leaving bars and restaurants uh, open while closing churches, which to me was a completely unjustifiable and unconstitutional attack on, on religion. But um, yeah, but I mean, generally speaking, I think it's the reopening has been good. We had a good little barbecue on Canada Day there and uh, I'm hoping it continues. And, um, and yeah, like I said, I mean, British Columbia, I've got friends and I did, was doing some work in Ontario and Quebec and some of the policies there I think were crazy. And way over the top. And I think British Columbia, for the most part, struck a reasonably good balance. And for sure, there were nuances here and there that I, that I didn't agree with. But um, I think for them, I mean, 
you know, in the context of what, how this was being dealt with in Canada, I think we did a not too bad job. Just kind of moving into my final few questions here. Obviously, there's so much we want to talk about, but it's kind of difficult without you having a, a policy platform to dive into specifics. Yeah. So hopefully we'll have a chance to do that once everyone's platforms are out. Um, but the more general question I'm going to ask you here is, uh, once again, kind of the hypothetical, you went, you've won the leadership, you're in official opposition. Uh, obviously, you know, priority one is going to be pointing out and criticizing the government, making sure they're held to account on the things they need to be accountable for. I mean, it's the most, one of the most important jobs in our legislative democracy. Um, but what would you like, not only what are you going to focus on uh, inside the legislature, but what do you see as an opportunity if you're a leader of the opposition, leader of the BC Liberals, to work with the government, to work with John Horgan on? Hmm. Good question. Um, the first thing I would say, I mean, you mentioned uh, holding the government to account. Right now, I see with the BC Liberals and too many politicians an obsession with just basically criticizing everything the government does um, and saying they should basically be doing the opposite um, without any overarching vision. I think actually the most important thing uh, leading up to the election, so while you're in opposition, is to present a comprehensive and articulate a comprehensive uh, you know, vision and alternative, uh, for British Columbia. Um, and as far as the kind of issues that I'm going to, would be standing up for, for me, the line that I keep returning back to is that for too long, hardworking, taxpaying, law-abiding British Columbians or Canadians, um, have been coming last. It seems like their concerns are last. Basically everybody else gets put, put ahead of them in the queue. I think it's time to to put their concerns first. So um, so I would be standing up for them. As far as where I could work with with uh, Mr. Horgan on, I actually um, grew up with him. I played hockey with uh, his son, so uh, we have a little bit of uh, history, which is kind of interesting. But um, and we're both from the same suburb of, of Victoria, if, if that wasn't uh, clear enough. But as far as areas to to work with the government on. I think we would have to see. I'm always open to working with them. I think forestry policy has been a issue that the NDP has has struggled with. And I think Horgan wants to do the right thing, but he's he's being pressured in all sorts of different directions. And, um, you know, any issue where there's lots of jobs at stake, uh, where you talk about jobs, you're talking about people's lives, livelihoods, the ability to film, feed their families, send their kids to hockey or university. I think um, I'm happy to work with them on it to find, you know, common sense uh, solutions that work. I think also LNG, natural gas is another area where the NDP has shown a willingness to, to kind of build and, and export. And I'd be happy to work with him on that as well. Yeah, some very issues very close to, I think, a lot of British Columbia's heart and their future. So I think an interesting answer for sure. Um, kind of, yeah, I think, oh, have, I, have we got through everything? Oh, we have. It's kind of the fun thing about a student podcast. We try to keep it short and to the point and focused on student issues. But Mr. Gunn, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, before I let you disappear back into your own life, uh, I was just wondering if you had uh, to, wanted to touch upon anything that we hadn't touched upon or if you just had a, a general message to the BCIT students. 
Yeah, I would just say I don't have any specific message. You're catching me obviously very early in this in this process. Uh, but one thing I would say is is the greatest threat to democracy. There's a lot of things that are thrown around, but I would say probably in BC's context, the greatest threat to democracy is probably apathy. So um, I would encourage all uh, of the students to obviously get involved and learn about the issues. And the other thing is is ask the tough questions. Whether you're reading something on the CBC or you hear it on this this podcast or you see me say something, always ask, always ask the tough questions. Uh, if a professor's telling you something, always, that's why I always did, always ask the tough questions and, and don't take anything at face value and, and always question and, um, and, and dig for the truth because I think that's always the, the most important thing. That was our episode. Make sure to check out our other interviews in the BC Liberal Leadership Series so you can find out how these potential premiers will impact your life. Thanks so much for listening. For Microlink, I'm Jonah Van Driesen.